compassion for God and compassion for our neighbor, reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church, and now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. Good to be able to get together and to study God's Word and sing some songs of worship, especially that worship, right? Oh yeah, so we look forward to doing that. Uh, more at the end of the message this morning. I'm going to take a moment to pray, and we're going to get into studying God's Word, which is going to be a very exciting passage this morning. I'm pretty stoked about it. Heavenly Father, we just come before you. We thank you so much for your Son, Jesus. Thank you for your incredible plan to bless us through him, to forgive us, to make us pure and clean as, as white as snow. And yet when we look at our pasts, we are as filthy as dirty rags. Thank you for your incredible kindness to us through Jesus. And I ask that as we study your word, that we would just have great joy in your word. That your word would shape us and mold us to be more like Jesus. That is our dream. That is our goal. And we look forward to the time when we will be with him. We think of our nation with so much unrest, so much disinformation, so much lies that are always being spun out there. We ask for grace upon our country. We ask for truth to be known. We ask, most importantly, for a great revival in our land, that people would turn from their sin, they would turn to you and be born again, and they would be given a, a new heart which is what you do when you change people's lives. Use us, Heavenly Father. Use us to begin to do that here in this community. Help us to be able to speak the good news of Jesus Christ to those people that you bring us in contact with in our work week and in our everyday lives. May we speak the good news of Christ with courage and faithfulness to you. Now I ask that you would uh, guard my tongue as I seek to teach so I only would say what is helpful and true. And open the hearts so your word may touch us deeply in the very fabric of our being. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. How many of you ever heard of a guy named William Miller? Does anybody know about him? It's okay if you don't recognize his name. I mean, he was born in the 1700s, so you wouldn't probably know too much about him. He was a rural New York farmer and a Baptist lay preacher. But as he studied the book of Daniel, he came to the conviction that he knew exactly when Jesus Christ was going to return based on his interpretation of some passages in Daniel. It was going to be October 22nd, 1844. And he was absolutely sure of it. So what he began to do was, uh, leaving his farming, he began to just go across the country telling people to repent and turn because October 22nd, 1844, Jesus is coming back. The problem was that a lot of people believed him. You can check this out on Wikipedia and they say that the Millerites numbered between 50,000 to 500,000 in number. And you can guess what happened on October 22nd, 1844. Absolutely nothing. Not only did that prove him as a false teacher, 
the problem was that a number of people, many people, thousands of people of the Millerites had sold their possessions to help fund the cause. And afterwards, they were left in complete, abject poverty. That's the background of him. Uh, in fact, what he taught and what happened as a result of it is actually known as the Great Disappointment in the 1800s. Look it up sometime on the web and you can see a little bit more of the history that goes with that about his Great Disappointment. But his question that drove all this wasn't necessarily wrong. You know, when will Jesus Christ return? What will be the sign of Christ's coming? That's a good question to ask, even though he had it wrong. Now, we're going to answer that question this morning, but we're not going to use William Miller's teachings. We're going to put our finger in the Scriptures, and we're going to see what Jesus Christ has to say about it. And I guarantee you, that answer is right. We are, uh, have just returned to studying the Gospel of Mark. You remember that we were studying the Gospel of Mark when COVID hit in, in the book of... In, get these wrong. We were studying the Gospel of Mark when COVID hit in March... And then we put a pause on that, and we jumped for the spring and the summer to the book of Philippians. And we said we'd go back to the book of Mark um, if everything was working well in the fall. And so last week, we jumped back into the book of Mark. Where we had left off was picking up in Mark chapter 13, which, by the way, Mark chapter 13 is without question the most difficult chapter in the entire book of Mark. It is considered one of the most difficult chapters in the entire Bible. But by the way, here at Crosswinds, if you know me, we do not shy away from difficult texts. We dive into them, we study them, and we see why God put them in there and what we can learn from them. And that is exactly what we are doing with Mark chapter 13. So I'd like to begin by asking you to turn to Mark chapter 13. We are going to read the entire chapter together. It's a unit we covered the first 23 verses last week, and we're going to cover the rest of the verses this week. So I ask you to stand out of reverence for the Word of God, and please follow along with your eyes in your copy of God's Word as I read this chapter. And as he came out of the temple, one of the disciples said to him, Teacher, look at what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us when these things will be, and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard. For they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. 
And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against their parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. False Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders and lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all these things beforehand. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light. The stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near, at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It's like a man going on a journey, when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight, or when the cock crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. That ends the reading of the Word of God. You can be seated. Without doubt, this is a very difficult chapter. Last week, I gave you an outline into how this chapter is structured. And I really believe this outline is the key to understanding and unraveling what are some very perplexing and complex words that we read this morning. 
So let me just take a few minutes to um, review what we learned in this outline. And Jeremy, don't put that up quite yet. I'll tell you in a moment. But remember we learned in the first four verses of this chapter, we find that the disciples asked Jesus some questions. They asked, when, Jesus has told them that Jerusalem and the temple are going to be destroyed because they have rejected him as their king. Ultimately, they will crucify him. And so Jesus says they'll be destroyed. And the disciples ask him, when will this happen? And what will be the sign that this is about to happen? While the book of Mark doesn't record this, when we go over, I think it's to Matthew and Luke, I believe it's in Matthew, which gives us a little bit more recording of what is being said at this point, we find those are not the only two questions the disciples asked Jesus. They also asked Jesus, when will be the end of the age and the sign of your coming? Those are the questions the disciples have asked. Now, I'd like you... Um, let me show you this, by the way, before I show you the outline. You see this in Matthew 24, verse 3, which is a parallel passage. Same event, just Matthew giving us a little bit more information of what was asked. And he sat on the Mount of Olives. The disciples came to him privately, saying... Tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. The rest of this chapter is Jesus simply answering those four questions. Once you realize that, that starts to demystify things. Now you can stick the outline up, Jeremy. Here it is. It's an A-B, A-B outline. First, we're talking about the signs. What will be the sign of the destruction of Jerusalem, which is what we studied last week in verses 5 through 23? And then he answers this, what will be the sign of my coming, which is the end of the world, if you want to call it that. Then he answers the when questions, and he does it by two parables. When, it's the parable of the fig tree, when will Jerusalem be destroyed? That's verses 28 through 31, and then he answers this one through the parable of the owner. When will Christ return? Now, once you have that framework in your mind, it really helps out the understanding of this chapter. And I'm going to just let you know that very few people have figured that out. I read far too many books that left me confused <laughs> as to what was going on here until I got into some of the best scholars on this book who pointed out this ABAB pattern, which unravels the mystery. What we're going to do this morning is I'm going to take a, a few minutes here at the front to go back over just quickly verses 5 through 23, which is uh, what we studied last week. With the answer of that, that section is about what was the sign that told them that Jerusalem would soon be destroyed. And you're actually going to see Jesus gave them two signs. And then we'll launch onto the rest of the chapter and finish it out. So, I just want to mention right up front here, I realize that many of you grew up being taught that verses 5 through 23 all pertain to a seven-year period of tribulation, they all pertain to a rebuilt temple, and they all pertain to the Antichrist and all those things. And I'm just going to tell you that as I've studied it, that's not the conclusion I come to. 
I ask your grace as we work through this. I simply think it's Jesus answering the questions the disciples have asked of him. When will Jerusalem be destroyed? Jesus doesn't ignore the disciples' questions and launch off into an answer that is completely unrelated to what they wanted to know. He just answers what they wanted. So, he starts with this. First thing he does is, he remember, he gave them false signs of his return. These are things that people are going to, or excuse me, false signs of Jerusalem's destruction. My bad. There will be false signs of the end, such as earthquakes, famines, and wars. And when you see those kind of things, when the world is starting to fall apart, people are going to say, well, this means God's judgment is about to come. And Jesus says, not necessarily so. All these difficulties in the world are just part of living in a normal, fallen world. Expect there will be false messiahs out there trying to lead us astray. That happened before 70 A.D. It's happened after 70 A.D. They're all over the place. Expect there will be human disasters like wars. It happened before 70 A.D. It'll happen after 70 A.D. Last week I quoted to you in 3,000 and some odd years of recorded history, there is only a little more than 200 years that have been recorded on the planet without war taking place. War is a normal part of living in a fallen world. Also, natural disasters. When you have natural disasters take place, people think that God's judgment is probably about to fall. In the reality, he says earthquakes, flood, tsunamis. Guess what? That's part of living on a planet where the planet is under the curse of sin. It's just going to happen all the time. Then Jesus went on to say, by the way, uh, don't just think that they're going to have problems in the natural order of the world. Expect you're going to be, um, have people who are closest to you, who will deceive you, who will fail you. Expect you're going to have all kinds of difficulties that way. That's a normal part of living in a fallen world, which is exactly the next point, which I jumped onto a little early. Sorry about that. Persecution is a false sign. If they persecuted Jesus, just expect they will persecute me. Uh, Jesus was persecuted. Expect they will persecute you. What did Jesus say it meant to be a Christian in the Gospel of Mark? Take up your cross and follow after me. Taking up your cross means that just as Jesus died, Expect that living as a Christian, because we identify with him, we will also be persecuted. We may also have to lose our life for following Christ. And that doesn't necessarily mean that it's abnormal. That's part of living in a fallen world. A world that is against Jesus will be against us. So when we see that in California, during COVID, the abortion clinics are open, the liquor stores are open, but you're not allowed to go to church, it shouldn't surprise us, should it? Expect to be persecuted, even by those closest to us. The next thing he said was this. The abomination of desolation and armies surrounding Jerusalem were the true signs of Jerusalem's destruction. So he gave us false signs last week. Then he said, expect that you'll be persecuted. Everyone's going to be persecuted as a Christian. Now here's the true ones you have to look for. 
And in Mark, we find that Jesus gives us one of those signs. In the parallel account in Luke, he gives us the other sign. And here's the one that will start in Mark. He says, when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it does not belong, you know the end of Jerusalem is near. And that sort of freaks us out because we have no idea what that means. And that's because we don't come from a Jewish background. So last week we tried to explain that a little bit. The abomination of desolation is spoken of in the book of Daniel. It's spoken of three times. And it simply means what the words break apart to describe it as. Abomination means to make something beautiful, horrid, and disgusting. It's like a dog. You know, you have a dog, you like your dog, it's on the couch, you pet it, it's your best friend, but if your dog's hit by a car and it's left on the road to rot for a week, your wonderful dog becomes a disgusting and horrid maggot-filled dog because it's dead on the road and you want nothing to do with it. And so the result of the abomination is the desolation. You want to get away from it. When Daniel spoke about the abomination of desolation prophetically, he was talking about that kind of experience being taking place in the temple and temple worship. There'll be a time where temple worship goes from a beautiful thing to a disgusting thing, and there'll be a great desolation of the people who all want to run from the temple instead of go to it. And we learned last week, he was prophetically speaking of uh, a king in 167 B.C. who would come and sack Jerusalem. His name was Antiochus Epiphanes. And what he did is he went into the temple. He desecrated the temple by sacrificing pigs on the altar. He put up a statue of Zeus in the Holy of Holies. Put up a picture of himself in there after all because he thought he was pretty cool even turned the rooms of the temple into houses of prostitution. That's a pretty good abomination, isn't it, of the temple worship? And what do you think God's people did? They split. Nothing to do with the temple at that time. And what Jesus says is there's going to be a second abomination of desolation. And when you see it take place, you know that Jerusalem's destruction is very near. A time where the worship in the temple will become an abominable, disgusting thing instead of a beautiful thing. So God's people start to run from it, not run to it. When that's happening, Jerusalem is about to be destroyed. Last week, we learned that is exactly what happened prior to Jerusalem's destruction by the Roman armies and by the general Titus in 70 A.D., at that time, the Zealots, who were a terrorist organization, a Jewish terrorist organization, were able to get a hold of the temple and temple worship. They're like uh, BLM and Antifa all rolled into one. Real bad group. What they did is they set up a guy named Fanny to be the new high priest. Fanny was known by the people as the clown because he was literally a joke. And what was his background? He was a criminal and a murderer. He even made the temple a source of criminal activity, murdering people in temple grounds. So what do you think everybody did with worship? Whoosh, run away. And Jesus says, when you see that taking place, you know the destruction of Jerusalem is very near. The other thing we learned is when you go to the parallel count in the Gospel of Luke, 
we also know that Jesus says, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, you know it is about to be destroyed. That is exactly what happened in 70 AD when Titus came. What Titus did is he surrounded the city and he dug a, a trench around the city and erected a wall around the city to completely cut it off from the outside world. There was a very short period of time when the, between when the Roman armies arrived and the city was sealed off. That was like your sign. You see the armies? You better run for your life because this is it, guys. And um, it was pretty hard. We learned that last week. The city had 1.2 million people in it. Titus killed 1.1 million of those people, either by the sword, by starvation, or by crucifixion. Pretty horrid. And the point I say is that everything Jesus just told us about what were the signs to look for about Jerusalem's impending destruction, an abomination of desolation once again in the temple, happened. Jerusalem surrounded by armies, and it's going to be destroyed. It happened just the way Jesus said those signs would take place. Now today we move on from what Jesus said about the signs of Jerusalem's impending destruction to the sign of his return and the end of the world. Continue on your outlines under point two. What will be the sign of Jesus' coming and the end of the world? And I want to jump into this by mentioning there are grammatical clues here that Jesus has changed questions that he is answering. This is pretty important. Remember what question he was answering before this, the sign of Jerusalem's destruction. Here there's indications he's changed the signs of the end of the world or his return. We can see this, by the way, in Luke. Luke 21, 24 says... And they will fall, this is the parallel account, by the way, same event talked about in Luke. And they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among the nations and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles, this is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. That seems to indicate there's going to be a long period of time between the end of the Jer Jerusalem's destruction and when the next event takes place. So far, we've been living in the time of the Gentiles for the last 2,000 years. There's also some grammatical clues, and I'm sorry this morning that there will be some things that are uh, maybe a little bit difficult to comprehend, but I'm going to try and make it as very easy and put everything on the bottom shelf as possible. Just realize this is one of the most difficult chapters in the Bible. So you'll get it. Trust me, it'll all work out. But it's pretty interesting stuff. The grammatical clues, I find, as we look at this, is the way Jesus uses his demonstrative pronouns. Now you say, what's a demonstrative pronoun? They are this, that, these, those. When Jesus is talking about these things, he seems to always be talking about the destruction of Jerusalem and the things that are near to him. But when he flips and starts talking about, but in that day or in that hour, now he's talking about his return and the end of the world. So if you start to follow the demonstrative pronouns when he's talking about these things, it's about the Jerusalem, 
and he's talking about that day and about that hour. It's talking about the end of the world. You can get all of a sudden get a clue to when he's shifting topics. I'll show you what I mean in verses 3 through 4, and then we'll look at it again in verses 30 through 32. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us when will, he's just talked about the destruction of Jerusalem, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when these things are about to be? And then you go to the end, look at the switch in the pronouns. But truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, which is exactly what happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. One you know is going to take place within that generation. The other one, you have no idea when it's going to take place. So these things are about the destruction of Jerusalem. That day or that hour has to do with Christ's return and the end of the world. Let's what, see what Jesus says is the sign that we should, the signs we should look for to know that that's actually happening. Number one, when Jesus is returning, the sun and the moon will go dim. But in those days, after that tribulation, notice the, t the, the pronoun, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. Incidentally, at this point, Jesus has not yet returned. It is he is about to return. What is the sign it's about to happen? The sun starts to dim. The moon goes dark. The one who created the universe at his impending arrival it's almost like the universe starts to wilt and bow in his presence. We see this, by the way, in Revelation. Very similar thing being talked about. When he opens the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth. The moon became like blood. So Jesus is about to arrive. The sun is going dim, and the earth, the entire earth, is shaking a global earthquake just because he's about to arrive. We continue. When Jesus returns, the stars will fall from heaven and the planets will shake. And he says, and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Before Jesus arrives, I don't know what it means to say the stars will fall from heaven because some of the stars out there are a lot bigger than the earth. Uh, maybe this is what you call a massive meteor shower. <laughs> Hits the earth right prior to Jesus' arrival. But notice, we've, we've seen earlier that the, the entire planet begins shaking prior to his coming. But it's not just the entire planet. It's the powers of the heaven that are shaken. It's all the planets in the universe are literally shaking because Jesus is about to arrive. Here's a pretty cool thought. When Jesus was on earth, he veiled himself so much in human flesh that he didn't look different from any one of us. He went through pain. He went through hunger. He went through s sweat. 
He went, he was crucified. He became tired. So he completely could identify with us. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. This is the unveiled Jesus as to what he's really like. He hasn't even arrived yet, and the entire planet is quaking. The sun is going dark. The universe is quivering in fear. That is Jesus in all of his glory. The same Jesus who covered and veiled all that so he could completely identify with us to die for us. Isn't that amazing just to think about that? We continue. Let's look at Revelation, which says some parallel things about this, about Jesus' arrival. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island were removed from its place. We talked about the stars falling from heaven and sort of a meteor shower. It's not one at a time, here and there. It's, it's, it's like a tree shaker. You guys ever seen those where they put around a, a tree and the machine shakes it? And in three seconds, all the fruit falls? That's gonna, what it's going to be like with the stars dropping to earth right prior to Jesus Christ's arrival. And to think about this, the skies begin to be rolled up you look up in the sky right before Jesus arrives, the very atmosphere of the universe, of our, of our planet, is beginning to peel back in preparation for Christ's arrival. Mountains, huge mountains and islands are being, so to speak, blown out of the way like a child kicking a soccer ball to make room to walk across the room. I think it's pretty impressive when Jesus is about to arrive. Isaiah, which is in the Old Testament, talks about the day of the Lord, the day of Christ's arrival. And look what it says, very similar stuff. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger to make the land a desolation and destroy its sinners with it, from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising, and the moon will not shed its light. Sound similar? Exactly. Then we see when Jesus returns, it will be in the clouds with great power and glory. And then it says, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. You want to circle something? Circle great power and glory. Because that's the whole theme right here. All those things we read up a moment ago, they were the signs to look for just prior to his arrival. This is actually his arrival. And when he calls himself the Son of Man, there's a lot of uh, cool things behind that. Jesus calls himself the Son of Man 14 times in the Gospels. It's his favorite self-designation term. The Son of Man is a term that is originally introduced to us in the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. What we find in Daniel chapter 7 is uh, there is one who is called the Son of Man, who is a human being, yet who is a divine being, who looks like a lamb that had been slain and killed, who approaches God the Father and is given the title deed to rule the universe. 
That was in the Old Testament book of Daniel. Who is that? One who looks like a lamb who had been slayed, who's given the title deed to rule the universe. Who? Jesus. That's prophecy. And Jesus says, that's me. Look how it says this in Daniel 7. And I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days, God the Father, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And when Jesus Christ comes back, one of the things he's coming to do is to judge. He's coming to judge sinners. But here's the good news, folks, for you and me. If you have trusted in Jesus Christ this morning, if he is your Lord and Savior, when he comes back on that day where the universe or the atmosphere of our planet literally peels back and the entire earth shakes and the sun goes dark, he is not coming back to judge you. He is coming back in that moment to save you. He's not your enemy. He's your greatest hero. Look what it says. When Jesus returns, he will come to save us. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the end of heavens. Does that cause your heart to flutter? to shake in gratitude? The one whose mere coming before he arrives causes the universe to shake loves you. He died for you. It doesn't matter what you have done, how much you have screwed up in this life. He has died for your sin completely and fully. And when you trust him and ask him to take away your sin, he will. And in this moment, he is there to be your greatest hero, your greatest savior. Well, we've seen so far signs. What were the signs of Jerusalem's impending destruction? And it happened just as Jesus said. Now we saw the signs for his return and, and what the end of the world would be like. When you see the sun going dark and all those other things, you know that Jesus is about to arrive. Now, what happens at this point? Is he answers the questions of when. So when will the destruction of Jerusalem take place? And well, when will his return take place? And he does it with these parables. We begin with this. When will the destruction of Jerusalem take place? From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. In Israel, uh, fig trees are one of the few what are called deciduous trees. That is, you lose your leaves in the fall and you get your new leaves in the spring. Most of the other trees are what we would call sort of an evergreen. It just sort of keeps its, keeps its leaves all the way through. 
And Jesus says, when you see these things, you know, you, excuse me, when you see a fig tree starting to get green on the end of its shoots, you know that summer is about to arrive. Now, I've told you that I believe that what has happened is Jesus has switched from talking about the end of the world, and he's going back to talking about the timing of Jerusalem's destruction. This is where I'm going to tell you that far too many people who have written on this chapter miss this switch. They miss what is going on. You can pick up commentaries on this. They'll say that Jesus at this point is still talking about his return and the, the end of the world. I do not believe that. But I don't stand alone. I believe the best scholars on this gospel agree with me on this one. I'll show you why. Remember I talked to, you, talked to you about the demonstrative pronouns? Whenever he's talking about these things, it's always the destruction of Jerusalem. When he's talking about, but about that day and that hour, he's talking about the distant future and the end of the world and his return. Look at how that pulls together. We can, as soon as we read this section, what does he say about this fig tree? So also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. He uses the pronoun that always has to do with the destruction of Jerusalem in this discourse. The problem is this little section where he says, it says, you know that he is near at the very gates. This is where it's getting a little difficult, so just be patient with me. He is near is talking about a person, not a event. This is where a little bit of Greek education is helpful, which actually makes me thankful they made me take all this for years in seminary. When you look at the Greek pronoun that is being used here, it can legitimately be translated either he is near or it is near. Half of the translations in English will say he is near. The other half of your translations out there will say it is near. The ESV has translated it as he is near because they think this event has to do with um, his return at the end of the world. The NIV Bible translated, translates it as it is near, thinking this goes back to the destruction of Jerusalem. I believe that's the right answer, that it's, it is near. And this is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, and the demonstrative pronouns reinforce that. And then when you continue, it says in verse 30, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. That verse makes total sense if he's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. It makes absolutely no sense if he's talking about the end of the world at this point. The pronouns, these things, line up for the destruction of Jerusalem. This generation will not pass away makes total sense. A biblical generation is 40 years. Jesus is speaking in 30 A.D. approximately. Jerusalem is destroyed in 70 A.D., exactly 40 years later. It makes great sense. But for people who haven't caught this switch back to the destruction of Jerusalem, there is far too much ink. And unfortunately, I had to read a bunch of it. 
spilled over the fact that they think the word this generation must be talking about the generation at the um, return of Christ or about the Jewish nation or about all the Christians in this age. And I'm like, like this makes no sense. Jesus uses the word, the phrase, this generation 13 times in the Gospels. Every single time he uses it, he's speaking about the generation that is alive at this time, not about some future obscure generation that has not taken place yet. So if you miss the fact that this is a switched back to talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, you end up with all kinds of exegetical gymnastics trying to figure out what this verse actually means. But I'm telling you guys, for the best of my knowledge, and I put a ton of study into this chapter, what's gone on is he's switching back to the destruction of Jerusalem. It's an A, B, A, B. Two signs and two timings. It's exactly what is going on. Now, there's a little interesting piece in the end here. Sorry for that difficulty, but hopefully it's helpful. Jesus' words have more permanence than the Old Testament. Jesus ends by saying this, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Doesn't sound significant. But didn't he say something like that earlier, speaking about the Word of God, the Bible? Look at this. Back in Matthew, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Notice this, folks. The Old Testament is permanent until all is accomplished. Jesus' words will never pass away, even after they are accomplished. Jesus is saying his words have greater permanence and authority than even the Old Testament itself. That's what he just said. Would you compare those two? This is a very clear claim of Jesus being God. Well, we've looked at the timing now of Jerusalem's destruction within that generation, which is exactly what happened. Jesus said it and it took place just like that. Now let's look at the question of this. When will the end of the world take place and Christ's return? The next parable, the parable of the owner. But concerning that day, notice the change in pronouns again, and that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Folks, if there's not an angel in heaven right now that can tell you when Jesus is going to return, if Jesus himself cannot tell you the hour that he is going to return, and only God the Father knows when that day and that hour is, I guarantee you that a fruitcake and nut job who happens to predict the time in place of Jesus' return in this life is going to be wrong. True? They're going to be wrong 100% of the time because you're sitting there saying, I know more about this than Jesus. No, you don't. Exactly. The best way to avoid false teachers is simply this. Keep your finger in this book. 
Because if you read this book, you run across little things like this verse. And if you read this verse, you'll know to stay away from all the false teachers who are trying to set dates and to try to instill fear. He says again, be on your guard, keep away, for you do not know when the time will come. Here's a thought for you. Remember William Miller I told you about at the beginning of this message? Who had between 50,000 to 500,000 people following him, convinced that October 22nd, 1844 was the day of Christ's return? All those Christians would have known that he was dead wrong if they had just read their Bible. What it shows is that far too many Christians are busy following false teachers instead of a true Savior. Is that you? Are you busy reading books about the Bible? Or are you reading the Bible itself? The words of Jesus are the truth. The words of other people may or may not be the truth, but they will be tested by this book. And they will be proven false, or they will be proven true. My, one of my challenges for you this morning is keep your finger in this text. Do you have a plan to keep reading this and rereading this? Are you reading three chapters a week, four chapters a week, continually going through this book, letting it be saturated and soaked into your, your heart? Because this book will keep you from error. This book will keep you from false teachers. So at the end of the day, you don't fall prey to someone like William Miller, and you're not somebody who has sold all your possessions, and you find out on April or October 23rd, 1844, that you were dead wrong, and you gave it all up for nothing. Then Jesus gives this parable. It's like a man going on a journey. When he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you all, what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. He says it's like this. I cannot tell you when I am coming back. But I can tell you that I am coming back. You won't be able to figure it out. You won't know the day. You won't know the hour. But you want to be prepared when it happens. You don't be, want to be caught asleep. The way you apply what Jesus' words are this, live every day as if he could come back today. We have to live every day as if he was coming back today. What that means is you don't want to be looking at some cheesy web page on the moment that Jesus Christ returns. You'd be pretty ashamed if that was happening. You don't want to be living with a person who is not your spouse on the day when Jesus returns. You'd be pretty ashamed if that was happening. If there is any act of kindness that the Holy Spirit has been prompting you to do, do it. Schedule it today. Because you don't want to come, have him come back and say, well, I was going to get around to it, but you know, I didn't think it was that really important. I had a long time to worry about it in the future. Is there a broken relationship in your life that you would be ashamed that you did not repair when Christ returned? Repair it today. Take the initiative today. He can return at any 
time. The question we have to ask ourselves is if Jesus was coming back today, how would we live differently? What sin would we turn from? What good would we do? And then we go out of our way to do it. Folks, preparing for Jesus' return in the end of the world is not about charts and setting dates and times. It's about living as if he could return at any moment. So when he comes, we have absolutely no regrets. Now here's some applications I put on the bottom for you. I'll go through them quickly. Nothing in the Olivet Discourse indicates that Jesus was talking about a future rapture followed by a seven-year period of tribulation. The disciples asked four questions. Jesus gave four answers. Now, I'm not saying there's no such thing as a tribulation. I'm not saying those things. I'm just saying this particular chapter is not talking about those things. But what I would ask you, if you grew up under that teaching, it's simply this. Take the time to study and reconsider this chapter and see what it says. That's what I did. And all of a sudden I find that my views changed. That I've matured. Second thing is this. Be careful about speculating when Christ return, will return. If the angels don't know, if Jesus doesn't know, and only God the Father knows, don't think that somebody else who tells you what is going to happen is going to be right. I guarantee you they will be dead wrong. And lastly is this, as I said a moment ago, live as, as if Christ could return today. We don't know when he will return, but he guarantees that he will return. And the moment he comes back, we want to make sure we're living life without regrets. In a moment, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And I like to always give you something to think on and, and ponder on for a few minutes before we celebrate the Lord's Supper. This is what I want you to take a few minutes of quiet to let the Holy Spirit talk to your heart about. If I knew that Jesus Christ was coming back before the sun went down tonight, what would I do differently? What would I change about the way I spend time with my family? What would I change about an issue of sin? What would I change about a relationship that is broken so that when he comes back, I will have no regrets and will not be ashamed? This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at ChristToOurCulture.com. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.